Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Mehushael, and Mehushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada, the other named Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of all those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain. He forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray as we begin. The psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Father, we praise you very much for that truth. That, Father, in our world of turbulence, our world of uncertainty, even our world of darkness, your word is light. And so, Father, we pray that as we think through now some of the big things of our world, that you would help us uh, to follow your word, to understand it, to embrace it, and to live it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning, I would like to start with a question, if I may, uh, and it's this. What do you think the biggest objection is, objection, to the Christian faith? What's the biggest barrier to Christian belief today? Uh, perhaps as I ask that, things like science pops into your mind, and you think through all the difficult questions we have to answer with science. And, or, or perhaps you think through the problem of suffering. How do we square suffering with a sovereign God and that sort of thing? Or perhaps you just think it's evidence for the Bible, and how does that kind of fit with history? And those reasons um, are all genuine reasons that people um, raise as barriers to belief. They all have their place. But I wonder if our biggest barrier is actually none of those things. And in fact, our biggest barrier is something I think that we don't really think about a lot at all. And it's this, our faith in human progress. Our faith in human progress. I think we're at a time in our culture where uh, we haven't got lots of people looking into the Christian faith, um, researching it and examining it and deciding that they don't agree with it. Rather, though, we are in a culture where we just believe we're progressing and we don't need God to do it. We believe humanity is destined to go somewhere. And we may not be there yet, but at least we're going in the right direction. Uh, let me give you an example of this from the science fiction writer H.G. Wells. Uh, he writes... 
Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? That we will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to things that man has yet to do. And you can just feel it, can't you? The optimism, the faith in human progress. And recently, I think, um, to give you a more recent example, I think you see that optimism play out in the way people argue by reminding you of the year. I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, people will argue and they would say, it's 2019, and that's the end of the argument. So, uh, I can't believe this is happening, it's 2019, or this shouldn't be allowed in 2019. You've, You've probably heard those sort of arguments, or 2020, or whatever year we get to. And the idea, the unspoken assumption is that we shouldn't be like this anymore because we're making progress. We're not like 2018, we're not like 2017, we're so unenlightened then, now we are. And for Christians, in this context, I think this puts us in a very awkward position because we're only too aware that we are seen as on the wrong side of history. We're seen often by many as a kind of echo from a previous age. We've now moved on from the church, we don't need it. And in that context, I think the church can spin off in two very unhelpful ways. Uh, First of all, it can become ultra-conservative and resist any change or any voice from outside. Or the flip side is that it can just go along with the culture and agree with everything that the culture says need changing. But this morning's passage, I think, pours cold water on our faith in human progress. Um, Today, we're concluding our series on Genesis And uh, in Genesis, we've been asking the biggest questions of all. Who are we? What are we for? Where are we going? And this morning's passage focuses on two families, the families of Cain and Seth. And I've got to be honest with you, it's not probably the best-known bit of the early belts of Genesis, is it? I mean, most preaching series will probably finish on chapter 3, and um, I guess for lots of us, this feels the unfamiliar bit. We like the chapter 1. We love the Garden of Eden. We don't quite know what's going on when we get to here, Um, or at least that's how I felt Uh, having looked at it. Um, But I think we're missing something if we do that, because it is very, very contemporary, because it shows us why human progress can never be the answer that we need. Uh, First of all, we see that progress isn't actually prevented by sin, but then sin isn't prevented by progress, and thirdly, salvation is in the promise, not progress. First of all, then, progress is not prevented by by sin. Um, the first thing you notice about this passage when you read it is just the amazing and incredible human progress that takes place. Have a look at verse 17, page 7. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. See, Cain, we're told, builds the first city. Instead of humanity being in nomadic tribes for the rest of its existence, it starts to gather in cities. And in Cain's great-great-great-grandchildren, I think that's about right, um, there are huge technological and cultural advances. Uh, Look at verse 20. Uh, Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. 
Now, when the Bible says uh, someone's the father of something, it means that they're the inventor, the first person to come up with the idea. And so here we see the origin of mass farming. The fact that you and me can go to Tesco's rather than scavenging for food in East Strop Park comes from Jabel's uh, invention of industrial farming. Uh, we see musical instruments. The fact that we can just pop on the headphones and stream music uh, and uh, it cheers us up or makes us sad, whatever we prefer, um, owes its origins to the harp and the lyre that is designed by Jubal. We see here for, um, forging of bronze and iron, the key metals, the phone in your pocket, the copper in its circuitry, uh, the aluminium case around it, comes from this invention by Tubal Cain. Now, um, recently, uh, there's been an emergence, um, quite a craze, for what people call 30,000-foot books. Um, by that, they mean uh, the types of books that are, are like sitting on a plane at 30,000 feet. They kind of run across the whole of human uh, history over thousands and thousands of years, and uh, they cover it in a few pages. Uh, here's some of them maybe you've read. Uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, Sapiens, which I think was a bestseller for a long time. It's probably the biggest... Uh, probably the most started book, the least finished at 450 pages, uh, and this new book, Transcendence, uh, uh, on a similar topic. Uh, and these books, there's a real craze around these because people are absolutely fascinated how different inventions have transformed humanity. Uh, this uh, latest book, uh, Transcendence, uh, talks about um, the invention of cooking. Sounds very everyday, doesn't it? But actually, he says that uh, it was a major step forward because it was the time we started. Um, uh, the cooking is basically a way of doing our digestion for us. It's pretty cool, isn't it? We're outsourcing our stomach, basically, when we're doing cooking. But you see, Genesis 4 got there way before all the bookshops because it shows us these significant advances in human progress which have helped us become the people we are today. Now, why are we told about this progress? Is it just like these books uh, that show us a bit of interest? Well, the key thing to notice is who's doing it. Who's doing the progress here? See, um, first of all, we see the progress is coming from human beings. Now, um, in the ancient world, there were other accounts like this about how the arts and how agriculture and how city building came uh, about. But there's one key difference between this and the Bible. See, in those other accounts... It's the gods that do it. Uh, here's um, the god Adapa, who's a kind of fish man god. Uh, and uh, you'll have to use your imagination. He looks a bit like a mermaid, okay, but it's a kind of bloke mermaid. Um, oh, there he is. There we go. Okay. A mermaid with a beard. There we go. Um, so the idea is this God, he came out of the sea, and he taught human beings how to, um, how to write and how to do agriculture and how to do city building. But can you see? The Bible's different, isn't it? Because all these advances are not made by the gods, they're made by human beings. See, it reflects what we see in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 28, which is on your sheets, that God created humanity in his image See, remember at the time, I, I said that God doesn't create a fully packaged world ready for us just to take off the bubble wrap and enjoy. He creates a world of potential. He doesn't just tell us how to make metal 
or music, or metal music for that matter, he creates a world that needs ordering, that's loaded with potential, that needs subduing. And we see that, don't we? In Jabel organizing things to make it more efficient, um, he's reflecting the image of God. Jubal organizes musical notes into a scale that causes a pleasant sensation as people hear it. He's subduing the earth. See, these things don't come from the gods. God has given us the wonderful privilege as human beings of bringing those things out of the world. It's incredible, isn't it? See, we see here that human progress in and of itself is not evil. We may be a bit of a technophobe or a technophile, but we shouldn't, by default, be anti-progress. And I say that because I think there's a bit of a view um, that emerged in the Victorian period, but I think is starting to come back uh, in the last couple of decades, where we see humanity as a nuisance to nature. Uh, the idea that we tell ourselves is that the world was quite happy on its own, but human beings have come and invaded and kind of set up their industry and technology and kind of spoilt everything. But the Bible doesn't quite teach that. The world is there to be subdued. Now, I said in Genesis 1, subdue doesn't mean the same as exploit, and there are definite ways that the world is used in a sinful way, in a destructive way, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in and of itself, human progress is God's gift to our world. If we're designing a bit of software to improve our company's performance, or we're organizing, organizing the laundry cupboard at home so we don't have to hunt for things in all the baskets, or we're building an extension for someone so they can enjoy the outside, or we're starting a business to meet a need we've identified, or we're writing a song for others to enjoy. These are expressions, good, God-given expressions of our humanity. But the second thing to spot here is that this is coming through sinful human beings, See, one of the reasons I think Genesis is actually a true account is because if this was fabricated, you wouldn't include this chapter in here, because it's saying that all the biggest advances of human beings have come through this family, the family of Cain. Now, we heard last week, didn't we, that Cain is famous for one thing. There's one thing on his CV. He murdered his brother. And we're going to see that this family follows all those traits. Sin gets worse and worse and worse. But yet, this is the family through whom major human progress is made. It's incredible, isn't it, to see the grace of God, that he doesn't just wipe his hands with Cain or his family, but he allows them still to express their image. Here, I think we we see an example of what the theologians call common grace. Um, Common grace is the idea that God shows kindness to the whole of his creation, not just those he has elected in the Lord Jesus. And, and common grace says that um, everyone might not be a Christian, but actually God shows a degree of grace towards them. So it doesn't mean that our humanity, as fallen as it is, cannot express real advances, even reflecting something of the goodness of God. And as Christians, we don't have to pretend that all the best ideas, all the best technological advances, all the best Um, political movements have to come through Christian believers. They often do, but not always, because here we see an exception. But the thing is, before we get too complacent, we need to listen very carefully to the next lesson this chapter gives us. Because as much as progress isn't prevented by sin through God's grace, 
sin isn't prevented by progress. What do I mean by that? Well, human progress might be good, but it cannot deal with yours and mine's greatest problem. Because as much as we make progress, it's contaminated by sin. How do we see that in the passage? Well, first of all, um, in the building of the city. Um, I said Cain builds a city. It's a major advance. But actually, there's a bit of a negative undercurrent here. See, the thing that um, set cities apart from kind of just rambling around in the ancient world was that they were a place of security. So why is it so bad that Cain makes a city? Well, remember what God said to him last week. Uh, Not last week, but we heard about what God said to him last week. He said, you're to wander on the earth. And you'll remember, Cain was worried about who he would would encounter, and God put a mark on him to protect him. God, in other words, was meant to be his security. But do you see what Cain's doing now? Instead of wandering, he's stopping. And instead of trusting God's protection, he's making his own. Alex uh, Alex Matea Uh, says uh, this, he's a Bible commentator, he says, the building of the city is an outward and visible sign of the self-sufficient man, but also a reclusive man. Adam hid himself behind fig leaves, Cain behind stone walls. See, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that actually this is an expression like Adam with the fig leaves, of defying God, of doing something different, of building my own security. And Cain reminds us that so often we make huge progress as human beings, but it often is a guise to save ourselves, to make ourselves secure. Um, You may have seen the film The Martian. I realize this is very sci-fi heavy, but I love sci-fi, I'm sorry. Make no apologies for it. But um, in the film The Martian, you may have seen it, um, it uh, documents this, uh, not documents, it's a film, but um, it uh, talks about uh, these astronauts that go to Mars and they have to flee suddenly, but they accidentally leave Matt Damon behind. And um, Matt Damon's kind of left on Mars, and uh, he wakes up, and he realizes that if he's got any chance of survival, he's going to have to kind of um, do science, as he puts it. And uh, the whole film is about how, through the kind of mechanism of science, he's able to save himself, he's able to grow food, he's able to feed himself, he's able to ration, he's able to build propulsion systems, he's able to communicate with Earth. And it's an incredible film about how he kind of does all these things uh, against the odds and succeeds. And he says this at the end, at some point, everything is going to go south on you. Everything is going to go south, and you're going to say, this is it, this is how I end. Now, you can either accept this or you can get to work, and that that is all it is. You just begin. You do the math. You solve one problem, then you solve the next one and the next one, and if you solve enough problems, you get home. And you can just hear, can't you, the, the undercurrent of this faith in progress. If you solve one problem and solve the next and solve the next and solve the next, eventually we get home. And we have that kind of story in our culture that if we get the next problem solved, if we solve the next political problem, if we solve the next social injustice, if we make the next technological advance, we'll solve the problems of death. We'll prob- solve the problems of wrongdoing. Now, what's the problem with this? Well, first of all, it is an illusion, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you've seen a child, and they've uh, done something wrong, they've hit their sister or something, and 
you've told them to go in time out, and they really don't want to go. And so um, you pick them up to, to grab them, uh, but, but as they do, they kind of cling on to everything they've got. So they're onto the sofa and onto the carpet and kind of dragging their nails. And it's completely pointless, isn't it? Because mum or dad just comes along and just lifts one finger one at a time and just plonks them where they want. But yet there is really an adult version of that, isn't there? We think the good job, the huge bank balance, the nice pension pots, the successful career, we build it up and we think no one can touch us, not even God. But like prizing the fingers off, those things we know can disappear in an instant. And they cannot even touch our greatest enemy of death. There's a second way we see the kind of ugliness of this progress, though. Um, In uh, Lamech's song in verse 23, uh, look at verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Do you see the theme of this song? Not nice, is it? It's, I've killed someone for injuring me. In fact, in the, the original, the, the word used there is bruised. Someone bruised me, so I killed them. That sounds fair. And he speaks about a young man, so it could be a youth. It could be um, someone in their 20s. You know, it's the kind of stuff that you expect to hear in The Godfather, isn't it? If they touch me, I'm going to kill them, and I'm going to kill their families. There's no sense of proportion. If someone bruises me, my revenge will not end. Uh, One commentator says, it is an expression of titanic arrogance. It makes power its God and carries its God, i.e. its sword, in its hand. Now the thing is, do you see the irony here? What have we just had before in Lamech's family? We've had the invention of music. And now what's Lamech doing? He's using that music to boast of his power and his revenge. And I think the author includes those two bits together to show us that wherever there's human progress, it is always going to be used for power, for getting one above someone else. Uh, Many of you, I'm sure, have heard the story about how the Nobel Prize began. Uh, It was founded by Alfred Nobel, and um, he was the inventor of dynamite. Now, dynamite was a huge advance uh, for human beings because uh, when people were cutting through rock, uh, they used nitroglycerine. And nitroglycerine is pretty fun. Maybe used it in chemistry at school. Um, It's very fun, but it's very unstable, so it goes off all over the place. Not what you need in a cave. And so in 1867, Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. It was a safe way to pack explosives uh, into rock. The thing is, though, Alfred Nobel was a pacifist. And he hoped his invention would actually save lives that were being lost through the other technology. But in reality, it was very different. As soon as dynamite was invented, it was used to inflict suffering on others. And perhaps in some sort of weird irony, it was called dynamite. Do you know what dynamite is in Greek? It means power. See, the horror plagued him, which led him to kind of atone by setting up the Nobel Prize. And, and we see it, don't we, time and time again. We've harnessed the power of the atom, remarkable human progress, but we've created the weapon, the most destructive weapon we could ever imagine. We've conquered the skies in flight. That is incredible, isn't it? But those planes were quickly fitted with missiles and even used as missiles by people to destroy others. 
We've invented the technological feat of the internet. It's amazing you can communicate with someone over the world and watch a video of a cat playing the piano. But the, but the internet is used for most destructive, in the most destructive ways, not least the fact that the most popular sites are built on pornography. And it's not just the kind of big technological advances out there. You'll know this in your own lives. Uh, how many of you have been at work and uh, your team's done a great bit of work and it's really solved a big problem and yet people are thinking, how can I make a name for myself? How can I get the glory? Or how many of you have baked a cake for a party and there's been a little bit of you that has thought, I hope this is better than everyone else and people get cake envy. See, you see the point, don't you? Our progress, as good as it could be, never escapes this desire for power. We think we're making progress, but we're just opening up another door for sin to rear its ugly head. I started at the beginning with that optimistic quote from H.G. Wells. Did anyone spot what year that was written? Who's paying attention? Get a gold star if you do. 1937. And uh, apparently there was something quite significant that happened uh, a couple of years later. Um, Here, what H.G. Wells says uh, in 1946, he says this, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he's been pleased to call himself, is played out. H.G. Wells died later that year. Now, the trouble is, because of our sheer faith in human progress, we think that won't be us. We've, we've learned from the world wars. We won't make the same mistake. We've moved on from those days. But do you see the point, the whole irony of it? H.G. Wells thought that only two years before 80 million people were killed. See, we see time and time again that human progress without God is not the answer. It doesn't solve sin. We tell ourselves we're more advanced. We tell ourselves we're more politically enlightened. We tell ourselves we're more socially forward. We're more progressive. But we always, there's always a way for those things to be used to make us self-sufficient and demonstrate our power. So if human progress is not the answer, what is? Well, I'm pleased to say there is a ray of light here at the end of this passage. It's almost uh, so quick you can miss it. Uh, it's in verse 25. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to, another, uh, to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord now, it's easy to think there, well, that's good for Eve. She had a, bit of, um, she had a child to replace uh, her murdered child. But um, this isn't no ordinary child. Uh, first of all, his name's called Seth. And if you look down to the little footnote, you'll see that Seth means granted. And not only that, um, the word for child there is the same word as offspring. Now, those two words, granted and offspring, come from chapter 3, verse 15. Um, you don't need to turn there. It's on your handouts. See, in chapter 3, verse 15, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, God is saying to Satan, you won't have the final word. Even though you've destroyed humanity, uh, Adam and Eve have fallen, 
I'm going to send another in her offspring to defeat you, to end sin and end death forever. But the thing is, by the time you get to chapter 4, you think that is over. Cain has killed Abel. The son of unrighteousness has killed the righteous son. And as Cain's family goes on and on and on, it doesn't look any better. I mean, Lamech's boast looks like, um, makes Cain look like a very reasonable man in comparison. Sin seems to have won at the day. But God has not finished. God has not finished. He provides another child to continue this promise. See, Seth has another child, Enosh, and Enosh has another child, and another child, and another child, and eventually we get to Luke chapter 3, verse 38, and we read that Jesus was the son, it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. See, do you see the point? This is a ray of light, isn't it, at the end, to say that God has not finished. There is another answer to the problem of sin. It's not going to come in human progress. We're too entangled to solve that problem ourselves. It's going to come in the birth of a child who will crush Satan's head. And in the birth of the Lord Jesus, which we're going to reflect on next month, we see that promise realized. See, Jesus really was the one who could have taken vengeance on his enemies. He had every right to do so. Where Lamech boasted of his power, Jesus really did have the power. But rather than killing those who bruised him, he died for them. Rather than destroying people for every wound inflicted on his back, he took their judgment on his shoulders. So that through his death and resurrection, he may raise a new humanity that is not plagued by sin and doesn't face the inevitable cycle of death. See, we don't follow the story, do we, as Christians, that we're progressive? Yes, you know, there's a right place for progression. It is an expression of our humanity, but it is never, ever going to be the solution. We need another. Our world needs the child, and in Jesus, we have him. Let's uh, just give you three things to take away this morning and think through. Um, First of all, a couple of implications here. Um, Expose the story. Expose the story. Um, As I said at the beginning, we're so kind of, uh, we so assume that we're making progress that we don't even notice it. So I wonder, a little challenge for you, next time someone says, I can't believe this is happening, it's 2019, say, why does that mean it shouldn't happen? And ask them, um, uh, why do you assume we're progressing? Uh, Progressing, rather. Uh, and see what they say. Let me know how you get on. Um, Secondly, uh, beware the persuasiveness of this story in ourselves. Um, It's easy, isn't it, to think, even I think as Christians, that we're more enlightened. And to look back at things like the Old Testament and think, yeah, but we wouldn't do the same. We wouldn't fall into the same trap. We would repent where God says repent. But we're not any better. Uh, This reminds us that we still get things wrong, just like the people in the Old Testament. As much as they needed a Savior, so do we. And thirdly, We have a new purpose, don't we, for our work, for our humanity. In Jesus, we have a new reason to create, to subdue the earth. Not to build an empire for ourselves, to make us self-sufficient. Not to demonstrate our power over our colleague or our family. We have a new reason because we're accepted in Jesus. We don't need to prove ourselves. And I wonder, it'd be worth taking this away and thinking through, what am I doing at work, 
in my retirement, as I run my house. How does this change that? How does this change it that I don't have to work to demonstrate my power or my self-sufficiency because that is done in Jesus? Let's pray as we finish. Eve says, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. We praise you, our Heavenly Father, that in the Lord Jesus we have the hope of your promise. And we thank you, Father, that promise did not fail, even despite our sin and our attempts to break it. And so, our Father, we ask that you would help us to repent of our faith in our own lives and our own progress apart from you. Help us, Father, to correct a world that uh, so um, buys into that. And help us, Father, to put our weight and faith on the Lord Jesus and what he brings. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.